I'm Charlie Melcher, founder and director of The Future of Storytelling. Welcome back to the FOSS podcast. My guest today is celebrated neuroscientist Anil Seth. Anil is a professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience at the University of Sussex, where he also co-directs the Sackler Center for Consciousness Science. Anil's recent book, Being You, A New Science of Consciousness, presents a bold new take on the biological underpinnings of conscious experience. The book has won near universal acclaim. The Wall Street Journal wrote that if you only read one book about consciousness, it must be this. And The Guardian called it a phenomenal achievement that will undoubtedly become a seminal text. I first had the pleasure of meeting Anil back in 2018 when we invited him to speak at the Future of Storytelling Summit. It was then that I first learned how valuable an understanding of consciousness could be for storytellers. On today's episode, Anil and I discuss topics such as embodied storytelling, co-creation, artificial intelligence, and how the stories that we hear and tell can actually change our experience of the world around us. I hope you'll find today's conversation as stimulating as I did. Here's Anil Seth on the Future of Storytelling podcast. Anil, it's such a pleasure to have you on the FOSS podcast. Welcome. Charlie, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I just want to start by saying how much I've enjoyed your recent book, Being You. Thank you for writing it. <laughs> well, thank you for reading it. That's, that's always, it's always a weird thing when you find out that people have actually read a book that, that I've written. I sort of wrote it without realizing that that might actually happen. So thank you. I'm a big fan of yours since so many years back when I think I first saw you speak at the TED stage, on the TED stage. And then we were very, very honored to have you come speak at FOST. And one of the things that I've always loved when you've spoken is how you describe the nature of consciousness. And you, you talk about this as a kind of controlled hallucination. And I would love for you to take us through and explain why you think of what we're doing when we perceive the physical world as a hallucination. Sure, I'll, I'll try to do that. My interest as a neuroscientist has always been about consciousness. Consciousness, in a sense, means everything for us. Everything that we experience is part of our consciousness, uh, whether it's experiences of the world or experiences of being a self, and you know, when it comes to storytelling as well. I mean, our experience of narratives, that's part of our consciousness. So it's where everything starts for us as human beings, is understanding the nature of subjective experience. And there are many ways to go about this, and in my research group, one of the key ideas that we've been developing for many years now is that perception is, as you said, it's a kind of controlled hallucination. Now, this isn't a new idea. It's not my idea. We're just taking it on in our own distinctive ways. And the basic premise of this is that we don't perceive the world as it is, as if the world just pours itself into the mind through the transparent windows of the senses. No. Brains are faced with noisy and ambiguous sensory information. The sensory signals that come into our eyes, into our ears, uh, through our skin, they don't come with labels about what's happening out there in the world. So going right back 
probably as far as Plato, but certainly to other people like Hermann von Helmholtz and so on, Richard Gregory, there's always been this idea that perception is a process of inference, of best guessing. The brain is always combining this noisy and ambiguous sensory signals with its prior expectations of their causes, with its prior beliefs or expectations about the way the world is. And it's the combination of these two things that gives rise to our experience at any one moment. And a key insight here is that perception just isn't this reading out of the external world. It's an active process. It's a construction. And that's why I use the word hallucination to underline this continuity between hallucination, which we typically think of as a perception that comes from the inside. Uh, but the control is just as important. Our perceptions aren't arbitrary and we don't make up reality. You know, the way we experience the world is controlled, reined in by sensory signals from the world in ways that are most useful for us as organisms. So one of the things I wanted to dig into is this idea that if we're hallucinating, I, I sort of almost think of it as a story that we're telling ourselves, right? This, this hallucination. And it's based, from what I've learned from you, on past experience, whether that's like through thousands of years of evolution or past experience from our own limited number of years on the planet, um, that we're able to take all of this flood of information that's coming in through our bodies, through the various ways we perceive the world, and then taking that raw data and turning it into something that we can make sense of, right? To, sort of telling a story to ourselves of what it means to walk into a wall or what it means to put your foot in the sand on, on the beach or we're kind of constantly processing at a high rate this data and making sense of it in a way that we can use, right, in, in, in a story that's useful to us to, to navigate in the world. Am I sort of saying that correctly? I think, yes, but I think a point to bring out there is that we are part of the story too. So the brain isn't telling a story to the self. That's the recipient of the story as if it's sort of sitting beside our ear, whispering this narrative to the self about what's going on in the world. No, we are part of this continually invented, created, constructed story about the causes of sensory signals. And this is a story that, that has, as you say, very deep roots. I mean, it's told by the very structure of our brains and bodies that has evolved over thousands and millions of years. And it unfolds on a moment-to-moment -moment and day-to-day -day basis. So these beliefs, some of which we are consciously aware of and some of which we are not, shape our perceptions at all levels. And critically, they shape that part of our perceptual experience that is the self. The self is another kind of controlled hallucination. And in this wider view, it's another kind of neurally told story. So before we get to the self, and I really, I'm excited to talk more deeply about that, I just think it's nice to help explain to our listeners how what we see isn't actually always what we see, right? I mean, I, that conflicts with what I feel like. I, I'm looking at, at you now through a screen. What do you mean it's not you? Uh, help us understand an example of how we're making sense of the world. <laughs> yeah, sure. What you said, what, what we see is not what we see. Well, of course, what we see is what we see. The, the question is, how does what we see relate to what's actually there? What reality actually consists in is a question for physicists. But what we see is always a construction. 
it's always an interpretation of what's out there. It's never the thing itself. This in philosophy goes back to certainly to Immanuel Kant, and he talks about the noumen and the, the, the absolute nature of things that we will never have direct access to. The best everyday example of this is, is colour. You look out into the world, and it seems as though objects really have colours. But they don't. I mean, colour, as the, the artist Cezanne said, colour is where the brain and the universe meet. The brain invents a, an infinite palette of colours from just three wavelengths of light. And wavelengths of light, they're not actually coloured, they're just different wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation. So what we see when we see colour is both less than what's really out there, because our eyes are just sensitive to this tiny slice of reality, but also more than what's out there, because from that tiny slice, we generate this universe of colour. And it's understanding that relationship that, for me, is absolutely fascinating. And it's always subjective. It's always subjective. Everyone's sort of making up their own sense of colour, and it's distinct from everyone else. And that's part of what you mean by this prediction machine, right? That our, that our consciousness is this sort of constant process of making assumptions or predictions about the world when we're sort of group hallucinating and agree on the hallucination, that's what we're calling reality, right? It's a, it's a consensus of... <laughs> right, there's that line that, that, that I did use in the TED Talk, that when we agree about hallucinations, that's what we call reality. And again, it doesn't mean that we sort of collectively bring reality into being, but we, you know, we agree on what's out there when the language that we use, and this gets back to storytelling, when the words that we use allow sufficient slippage that individual differences in how we actually experience things can be glossed over. So if I say, ah, oh, the sky is blue today, it's a lovely day in Brighton, I'm seeing a blue sky. Now, if you were here in Brighton with me rather than on the other side of a Zoom screen, you might actually be having a slightly different visual experience, but you'll probably use the same word and the experiences will be close enough that we'll get by. And in fact, it's useful, of course, because we can communicate that way. But I think we underestimate the degree to which we experience the same world differently. I think this goes on everywhere and all the time, and we all inhabit our own distinctive inner universes, our own of subjective stories. So, so in a way, the consciousness is a generator of stories, a constant kind of first-person authorship of the world for ourselves. I think this is a, it's another way of expressing this fundamental question, that conscious experiences are fundamentally subjective. There are two aspects to that that are important. One is the fact that conscious experiences are private. Every brain generates its own inner, inner universe. Part of that experience is the experience of being a subject, of being a self, of having an identity. The philosopher Daniel Dennett, one of my mentors, came up with this phrase, the narrative self. What's key about his idea of the narrative self is that that is actually just one part of what we generally experience or what we generally call the experience of selfhood. But then there are also these aspects of self that constructs a continual identity over time. I'm Anil Seth. I have a con I, there's some continuity between me now and me yesterday and a year ago and several months ago and, and projected out into the future, woven from memories and plans. And it's that aspect of the self that, that Dennett is calling the narrative self. 
this preservation, this continual weaving of personal identity. And this reminds me of the experience I had where I was invited to create a story file, uh, which is this very cool company that uses natural language processing to let you be able to have conversations with video. So what they do is they ask you a lot of questions on, on camera, and then that gets put into a, what they call a story file, and then somebody can download it and talk to you, ask you questions. And so I sat there and, and over three days answered 600 questions about myself so that they could create this story file of me. And it put me through this incredible sense of crisis because first I realized well, what am I other than this series of stories that I tell about myself? And secondly, how fungible that those stories are. Like, uh, it depended on what they asked me before helped to make me think of the next answer to the next question or whether I just had a cup of hot coffee or, <laughs> or was feeling a little tired or, you know, sort of just the stories that I thought of then were not the ones I thought of at night in bed. I should have told that story. Anyway, my realization that so much of how I identify my own consciousness is dependent on this very fuzzy set of stories <laughs> that comes and goes. And we know in psychology that Forgetting is quite an important part of, of a process. Like we, we are continuously evolving. I think part of Dennett's point with the narrative self and, and a long-standing lesson in some of the more Eastern spiritual traditions is about impermanence. So even though it seems we're a stable and continuous self, of course we're not. Of course we're changing all the time. Recognizing and accommodating and, and coming to terms with that impermanence, I think, is, is quite important. The other thing you mentioned about that, that that I think is super interesting, though, is you know, when you're faced with this task of answering loads of questions about yourself, the fungibility of it, you give one answer and not another, you remember something later on, but not something else. And there's another aspect to the self, which I think is probably where storytelling is exemplified, which is what in the book I call the social self. And you know, there are some philosophers and psychologists who think that Consciousness itself arose fundamentally because of, the, of an organism's need to engage in social interactions. Um, mm. And that without a social context, we just wouldn't be conscious. I don't go that far. But I do think an important aspect of what it is to be me is partly constituted by the minds of others. So what it is to be me depends on how I perceive others perceiving me. So it's refracted through my social network. I'd like to understand better how our idea of consciousness is connected to our bodies. You say in the book that we perceive the world around us and ourselves within it with, through, and because of our living bodies. Can you explain that? This gets back to this core idea of thinking of the brain as a prediction machine. And it's core task in making predictions and updating them when it encounters new sensory data, which it does all the time. Now, a lot of our self-related experiences like emotions, I think, come from predictions about the causes of sensory signals that come from within the body. There's this whole area of perception, this whole realm of perception called interoception. I know you talked about this a little bit with, with Annie Murphy-Paul on a recent Annie Murphy -Paul, podcast. Yeah. And it's a bit overlooked, but we all know what interoception is when we feel an emotion. That's, that's interoception. If we feel anxious or if we feel happy, it's just 
perception of the physiological condition of the body. And if you think about it, that is fundamentally what brains are for. They're not for writing novels as much as that might be a high point of what human brains can achieve. <laughs> brains are for keeping the organism alive and controlling and regulating the internal physiology of the body is the primary duty of any brain. And so when I say that we perceive the world and the self with, through, and because of our living bodies, the underlying claim there is that this machinery of prediction arose in evolution, it developed in each of us from birth, and it operates day to day fundamentally in order to keep the body alive. Prediction is a very, very good way of controlling things. So prediction, when it comes to the body, regulates the body, it keeps it alive. And on that basis, everything else follows. So all the predictive machinery through which we experience the world, through which we make guesses about what other people are thinking and experiencing, that all fundamentally stems from this basic biological imperative to keep on existing, to stay alive. There's a great example of this idea of stories having survival information, which I love. It's one of my favorite books, uh, which is a book by Bruce Chatwin called Songlines. The story that he tells there is one of Aboriginal tribes uh, in Australia having passed these songs down from generation to generation, songs that everyone learned to sing as, as um when they were children. And the songs all often had references to physical places, but those places didn't exist in the landscape, so no one, they thought they were just fictional. Um, but then later with satellite imagery, they were able to show that in fact, what was once a great lake mentioned in the story has dried up. And these stories actually were survival information, literally of a map of how to navigate in times of extreme uh, drought or, or other physical challenges, so that from generation to generation, they were passing basically the map to survival down to, to their ancestors. And I just thought like that is incredible, first of all, that we could use modern day science to sort of unearth the the longevity of the information that was encoded in those in those songs. But I love that idea that actually we perhaps are vessels of certain types of survival information, our own and construction of our own uh, consciousness, almost like you said, like like genes being passed down. I think in that case, it's, it's, I haven't read Bruce Chatwin's book for many years, but I do remember it made a big impression when I read it I mean, 30 years ago or something. It's, it's a wonderful story about stories, but it, it seems like more a symbiotic relationship there that the stories need the people and the people need the stories. They, they need each other to, to both continue to persist. And for me, it also raises a question. I don't have an answer to this. I wonder if you do that. Now, of course, we have maps. We have GPS. We don't need this oral tradition of relating locations and landmarks through story. We can look it up on Google Maps, Google Earth. In a way, this is obviously more convenient and in some sense it's more accurate. But maybe there's something lost there too. And I, I don't know what that would be, whether it's some, some sort of individuality that, that you know, we all look at the same Google Earth, but we would all have different kind of internal cognitive territory through the telling and interpretation of these stories differently. And maybe there's a flexibility in that kind of tradition that we, we don't have when we just have this 
presumably objective reference that we don't need to continually articulate individually or in a group. Again, if you think about this as a kind of storytelling, right, when you translate a three-dimensional planet into a two-dimensional projection of a map, there's bias that comes through. It can be northern versus southern. If I recall correctly, most two-dimensional maps scale Africa to a smaller actual landmass than it really is. I mean, that's a whole other question about the role of, of bias in perception or, or storytelling. I guess, obviously, as we've said, everybody is making sense of the world in their own way through their own consciousness, and it must be very difficult to overcome the kind of stories you've told yourself or the, the kinds of history that you grew up with that, that impacted your perceptions of the world or your understandings of the world. Has bias come into your research and consciousness? It does very much, and it comes in at, at different levels. In a sense, all perception is bias, because this gets us back to this question of whether it would be possible to see the world actually as it is, which I do not think is possible. Every perception is a construction. And then there are more systematic biases that play on top of this general principle that we can never escape bias. So for instance, one bias our visual system has is that light is more likely to come from above. Now, we're not aware that our perceptual systems are biased this way. It shapes how we perceive shadows. And there's a good reason for this bias, because throughout our evolutionary history, the sun is typically above us rather than below us. So this is a useful thing for a visual system to get baked into its circuitry, this bias. But then there are other forms of bias, which are obviously more worrying when we talk about social biases that we might perceive people with different skin color as having different abilities, different talents, different emotions, different emotional capacities, and so on. Those are biases that can have consequences that we would want to ameliorate. And in fact, this is a big current debate in artificial intelligence because we have, of course, very powerful algorithms now for classifying images, objects within images. But their power is gained by being trained on very large data sets. But these data sets are not completely um, representative samples of the world as it is. There, there are biases built into these data sets. So the algorithms that we get uh, out of them embed these biases and trying to recognize the biases that we might be inadvertently building into technology, I think is a really important challenge for machine learning and AI. Since we're talking about AI, I wonder if your research has led you to think about the future of intelligent machines. And are we, you know, there's a lot of dystopian fiction out there about what's going to happen when the AIs get smart enough and are you somebody that believes that the AIs are likely to become intelligent and, or not just intelligent, but conscious? I'm not one of those people. I'm not a sort of singularity mongerer that thinks there'll be this threshold at which AI suddenly exceeds and supercharges itself beyond human uh, understanding and control and at the same time becomes conscious and at the same time decides to enslave us all in in battery farms, organic battery farms or something. Now, this, this might happen, right? I think there's a lot of things to worry about with AI as it gets more powerful. But to my mind, they are things like uh, embedding bias in them, allow, allowing machine learning to make decisions, but 
if they do so in a way that's not that trans transparent, we don't know why they're making the decisions they're making, I think that has uh, a lot of potential be damaging consequences. But as to these sort of larger, almost science fiction questions, I think that conscious experience might be something that really does depend on the stuff brains are made out of. In living bodies, this imperative for staying alive, for persistence over time, that just goes all the way down from the body as a whole to individual organs to individual cells. So there's no bright line at which you say, well, at this point, it doesn't matter whether it's made out of cells or not. So I suspect that consciousness might be, and I don't, can't prove this or show it, and I don't think there's a very good experimental test for it yet, but my intuition is that consciousness does depend on our nature as living machines, and that makes the prospect of artificial consciousness just that bit more remote. Perhaps a, a conscious machine that we build would also have to be a living machine. Mm. Well, again, I love this understanding of consciousness as being indistinguishable from the body and, and the organic component to us. I think one of our big theories at Future Storytelling is that we've spent way too much time with our stories and our information being conveyed you know, through our eyes and our ears. So just all of this is part of that case for a kind of whole-bodied, immersive storytelling that we're moving towards. I'm very excited about that. I'm just want to. I think for me, that's a very exciting prospect uh, because I, I I agree. I think there's something quite constraining about the way in which we are passive recipients of of cultural experiences of narrative. And of course, when you witness people moving, you your brain is still processing that movement. So that does engage aspects of embodied cognition anyway, even if you don't physically move. But this idea of actual movement, of, of, of engaging with narratives through movement, it's not something new, of course, right? It harks back to very old expressions of this, of, of dance and of ritual, where, where movement is, is of the whole group is absolutely key to it. It's not something you just passively consume. You actively participate in it. And this aspect of culture has never gone away. People always dance. They always move. And to find channels where we can connect the creative processes of, of storytelling and of narrative to that fundamental imperative to move, yeah, I think that's, to me, that does sound like the future of storytelling. And and the past, you know, it's reconnecting us to to something very core to us as a, as a species. There was a great quote that you shared with us when you came to FOSS, which was, all of our perceptions are kind of storytelling by a brain. And by shaping these experiences, storytelling itself has the power to change our perceptions so we can learn to experience the world in new ways. And, and I've loved that because I feel like that is, again, kind of at the basis of the power of storytelling, ultimately. It reminds us of the awesome power that storytellers have to literally get us to rethink or understand the world in completely new ways. Right. A, a, story, a story takes us out of ourselves, doesn't it? it? It takes us into a different world, into a different mind. We experience things for, from the perspective of another. This is something that that's quite remarkable. 
And we can, of course, do it in other ways too. We do it through through going to the theatre, going through to the cinema. We do it through taking psychedelic drugs. We do it through all sorts of other <laughs> channels. There are many ways in which we, we can change our encounter with the world and the self, yes. Mm. To me, this discussion is about the power of co-creation. I certainly believe that that's what's happening in this new era of storytelling that is participatory and gives agency to the types of audience members who used to have been passive, right? Stories were fixed on a rail. Your job was just to sit there and, you know, consume it. And now we create these story worlds or immersive theater, for example, or, or other forms of XR are, are creating places where you go and you have a role to play to create meaning in this story or to literally, you know, create the story. Again, that, that mirrors a lot of what you've been saying about consciousness and how we just show up in the world, period. Actively participating in the creation of the story of our lives and, and how we experience the world at all times. And it just helps to make it explain why this idea of co-creation is so much more um, maybe natural for us as, as a species and more powerful and something maybe the great storytellers have always understood. I think They've so. I think understood it, it, that. again, it sounds like one of and this is way out of my wheelhouse now, but it does sound like again a very, very old idea. I'm just thinking of like classic detective stories, and of course they don't give you all the information all at once. They, the best ones work when they lead the reader to anticipate, usually wrongly, uh, the you know the, whoever did the murder, whoever did the crime, and then you get some more. Then you you make you reach a different conclusion. So, the the author is is not just telling, just revealing. A sequence of events that happens. The, the the challenge is to to guide the active construction constructive processes in the reader's mind along a particular path, but a path of their own making. So it is this process of co-creation, and that's with a passive medium. That's just with reading text. So what I think is really exciting about what you've been talking about is how we can go beyond that and and rehabilitate and newly invent new ways of co-creation that can get us beyond screens, beyond text, and into the world physically. Thank you, Anil. I look forward to continuing to share a controlled hallucination with you whenever possible. <laughs> and I so appreciate your time and wisdom with us today. So great to see you. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie. I'm happy to co-create a controlled hallucination anytime. Thanks so much for, for having me on the show. I'd like to thank Anil Seth for joining me on today's show. You can find links to order his book and watch the short Faust film we made with him by visiting the link in this episode's description. Thank you for listening to the Faust Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, I'd really appreciate it if you'd give us a kind review. Each and every one helps. Faust also produces a monthly newsletter that's filled with valuable information for storytellers of all kinds. You can subscribe for free by visiting our website at fost.org. The Faust Podcast is produced by Melcher Media in collaboration with our talented production partner, Charts and Leisure. I hope we'll see you again soon for another deep dive into the world of storytelling. Until then, please be safe, stay strong, and story on. Mm -hmm.